<clears throat> Today's scripture reading will be from Genesis 2, 23 through 24. Genesis 2, 22 through 24. That's going to be page 4 in your pew Bible. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall, be, shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you here. It's encouraging to us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. It's good to be together as a church family, as God's family, and to worship together and to encourage each other. And this month, all month long, we're placing emphasis on faith and family and how faith ought to form our place in the family, and ultimately how faith ought to form our families if everybody in the family will allow faith to form their families. With an emphasis on that, at the end of this month, we'll have a day that we call Family Day. It'll be on the 24th. And our schedule for that particular day is a little bit different. The morning schedule will be very similar with our morning worship and Bible class times being the same times. But we will have a big tent set out to the side here and we'll eat lunch together. And it'll be a catered meal provided by the uh, Torreses and we appreciate their servanthood to feed us so many delicious meals. And all we gotta do is say that they're cooking and you're saying to yourself, oh, I don't wanna miss that. And, and so uh, during late service, early service folks will have the opportunity sometime during that to begin eating. And then late service folks will let out and eat. And then uh, about one o'clock, we'll come back here for another worship service. And then by about two o'clock, we'll be uh, letting out and we will have various activities that we're encouraging the church family God's family to do together. But we're also encouraging you, if you have physical family that's a part of this congregation, sign up for things collectively. In other words, do something that afternoon as a family. Uh, you will notice that there's a handout in the foyer of 13 different activities. And those will be taking place. Any of them here that say beginning at two, it doesn't mean they're literally beginning at two. It means you're leaving here at two o'clock uh, to go and do that. Also a correction that's on the bottom here, Burgess Falls, uh, we just found out late in the week is closed right now. Uh, I don't know if the water's closed, but getting there is closed off. And, um, and so instead, uh, the Burkas are going to lead a hike at Long Hunter Park around the Couchful Lake. And, uh, and there may be a few other minor changes that when you sign up there on the sign-up sheets, you'll note that. Uh, there are some events that because of room uh, limited seats in a bus or etc., cetera, uh, that they will be closed out. And some of them will probably be closed out, one or two will probably be closed out by the time service is over this morning. And, uh, and so if there's certain things that you want to do, uh, many of them are unlimited. S several of them are no cost at all. Others, there's cost involved, whatever the place charges, where we're going, etc. And so look on there and discuss as a family and decide what you want to do. But uh, we look forward to it being a great day and we would love for you to join us in this great day. Several years ago in 1996, 
Something happened just up the road in Opryland Hotel that hasn't stopped being talked about since. The Nashville, Tennessee area welcomed in the Opryland Hotel the ABCA convention and 4,000 baseball coaches around the U.S. came to it. There was a coach named John Scalosis. He was invited to speak. Several of those in attendance thought to themselves, I've never heard of this guy. Why is he invited to speak? But yet when he was introduced and he made his way as a 78-year-old man, made his way to the podium in dark polyester pants and a light blue shirt, the crowd stood and gave him an impressive standing ovation as he stood before them. Others began to wonder, who is this guy that did not know the treat that they were about to receive? Now, one thing that was odd was he had a string around his neck. Attached to that string was literally a home plate. And he didn't say anything about it for 25 minutes. And finally, at 25 minutes, he said, you're probably all wondering why I'm wearing home plate around my neck. Maybe you think I've escaped from a mental hospital. I assure you I haven't. But I do want to tell you a few lessons I've learned over my 78 years of living about home plate. And he looks to the audience as if to quiz them. And he says, do we have any little league coaches here? And several hands went up. And he said, how wide is your home plate? And almost in the form of a question, someone ventured to say 17 inches. And he said, any Babe Ruth coaches here? How wide is your home plate? And again, the question came 17 inches. And then he said, what about you high school coaches? How wide is your home plate? And it became as a very matter of fact statement. The cry came out 17 inches. He said, what about your college age? 17 inches. Any minor league coaches here? 17 inches. And if there were any major league coaches here, what would the answer be? And now it became like a chant. 17 inches. And he replied back, 17 inches. And what do we do to a pitcher in the major leagues that can't throw a ball across a 17-inch plate? And he said, and the crowd chuckled, we send him back to the minors. He said, what do we not do? He said, we don't change the plate to 18 inches or 19 inches. We don't ask him, would you like the plate to be 20 inches? And then... For the first time, coaches started to realize what he was saying when he said, coaches, when your best player shows up late to practice, what do you do? When your best player violates the no facial hair policy and comes to a game unshaven, what do you do? When five of your best players are caught drinking what do you do? Coaches, do you change home plate? Or do you leave it 17 inches? He then took his home plate and flipped it around so he could see it and took a Sharpie. And he drew a door and two windows on it and flipped it back around. 
and it looked like a house. You know the home plate shape. And he said, what about in our homes? Are we holding ourselves responsible as moms and dads and husbands and wives and as our children? Or do we try to let ourselves off the hook by convincing ourselves that we can change the width of home plate? Then he flipped it back around and with his sharpie, he put a flag at the top of that house and he flipped it back around and he said, what about in our schoolhouses? Are we trying to change the rules? Are we holding people responsible? And then he flipped it around. He put a cross at the top of the house and he said, what about in our church houses? And in 1996, you may remember that that's when some news came out and his comment was in reference to that news. And he said, whenever children can be abused and the higher leadership covers it up in churches, that's changing the rules in a way that's destructive. Shouldn't we leave home plate 17 inches? The fellow that wrote this article is named Chris Speary. And Chris says, I didn't know who this man was. And now I find myself with my jaw dropped. And I think to myself, I came here to to teach kids how to run the bases better and connect with the ball and flag a, a, a fly ball or scoop a grounder. And this guy has just led 4,000 coaches into the depth of the real value of life. How to hold ourselves accountable and all that we can influence to be accountable also. And he goes on and he says, if we don't leave home plate 17 inches, on our teams, in our schools, in our churches, in our homes. And then he, as he said this, flipped it around to the backside of the plate that was solid black. And he said, what we have ahead of us is dark days. His message was clear. Coaches, keep your players, no matter how good they are, your own children, and most of all, keep yourselves 17 inches. What standard forms your family? What standard forms your life? When we think about things that are worth fighting for, our faith and our family are worth fighting for, but what is the standard for which we fight? Are we going to just say, well, as a husband or as a wife, this is the way I want it to be? Or are we going to allow faith, which comes by hearing the word of God, are we going to allow God's standard to be set and kept to form our life? Today, there's a regular question that is becoming asked it's a common question, and it's becoming more popular all the time, and that is, why marriage? We're not the first decade or generation to ask that, 
but it's a question that's being asked over and over. I remember when I was about 24 years old, we'd come home from up north just at a holiday and we were visiting and I was catching up with one of my best buddies and it's going to seem really weird to you but what we did in the evening to catch up was we went out and worked and so we I went down to visit him he said let's go I'm framing a house and so we we went and and we put up some walls that evening and and I remember right where we were standing and and we were just standing there talking as we stopped working for a little bit and he said so you're married and then he named three or four of our acquaintances and he said, just in the last year, and he started quoting them. And every one of them had told him how bad marriage was and that he should never marry. And so he looks at me and says, you've been married a couple of years now. Is it worth it? And he had a girlfriend that he loved deeply. He wanted to get engaged, but he was somewhat afraid because all he had heard was how bad marriage is. And so literally 25 years ago, a friend's looking at me and in essence is asking this question. Why marry? Is it really worth it? Is it as bad as what everybody says? Or is it as good as God says? And are we going to allow everybody else's standard to shape our marriage and if so it can be as bad as everybody says or could we as husband and wife jointly agree to allow God to shape our marriage our family and then it could be as great as God says it goes back to the standard and then whether or not we keep it if we allow the world to set our standard and we keep that we can expect worldly results if we allow God to set the standard and both husband and wife keep that standard, we can expect God-like results. Unless the Lord builds your house, you labor in vain who build it. That's what God said. So who's going to build the home? In Psalms 127 is what he said there, unless the Lord builds the house. Now, please realize that as we go into this study, that really will be the beginning of it, and then next Sunday morning we'll continue it. I need you to know something that I think is very important. We're all aware of the fact that we can't live other people's lives, and sometime in our families we have deep pain, and in a sense we have deep regret, but it's because of what family members have done. And that hurts sometime when we even hear lessons like this because there's pain that's been brought into our life that we wish had not been introduced to our life, but it has been. But you realize we can't stop talking about the standard that God gives just because there's some pain involved in some of our families. Also, we know that there are some that you have regrets of your own. You see in your own life how you leaving that standard has created pain in your life, in your family's life. And if you could go back and relive time, you wouldn't do it differently, but none of us can. But we can be forgiven. And so this, this lesson today is, is not to, to have anybody leave here feeling like I've been forgiven and beaten up all at the same time. This is not an effort to, to renew past 
guilt that you have been forgiven of and, and try to pick a scab apart. But again, we must speak what God speaks. We are God's family. And as God's family, we can never stop holding up God's way. And we must hold it up and set it up as the standard, not the challenge in the sense. You know how sometimes you set a challenge up and you say, oh, that is so high. I doubt I'll ever reach it, but, but that's what. God's design of the family shouldn't be some unrealistic standard that looks like a challenge. It should be what we submit to each day of our life. And so what would this look like if we could ask God? And I know as you see that slide there, it, it might almost look like it, it's making light of it. And, and I don't mean to do that at all, but I really do want to illustrate it in this way to, to get our attention. Just like someone says to you, well, why marriage? You're a Christian, so you probably believe in marriage. And maybe it's somebody in the world that says, I'm, I'm not a Christian. And I tell you what, all I've seen is a lot of pain out of marriages. And so what if, what if somebody could literally hand you the phone and says, God's on it. And you wanted to know why marriage, God is going to tell you why marriage. What would God say? If God was on the phone right now, what would God say about why marriage? You probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about how you write sermons. You don't need to. But I do. In the beginning of this week, I made a commitment to myself. I'm not going to preach this series thinking about what I think people need to hear about marriage. But instead, there's about five passages where God speaks about why he created marriage and why that pattern needs to remain effective in the life of his family, God's family, forever. And all we're going to do is seek to create a list that God has given us where if we stopped and we said, God, why marriage? Not a, a cute 21st century edition of, hey, can we make a list of five things that sounds really clever? Instead, what if we said, God, just give it to us. You're the creator of it. You're the one that when man messed it up, you would remind us from time to time, hey, remember, this is the reason I made marriage. And so over the next couple of weeks, let's just let God speak of why he made marriage. And hopefully they're all meaningful to us because if it's the reason God says that he made it, it ought to be meaningful to us. Look in your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis, the second chapter. And as you're turning there, let me go ahead and tell you what we're going to notice as we read verse 18. We're going to notice that the first reason that we'll bring out of Genesis 2, that God created marriage was to avoid loneliness. God says that he created marriage to avoid loneliness. You know that God loves you and God wants to give you what you need. And as a matter of fact, when he created Adam and Eve, the very first of the human race, he created them fulfilling their every need. Let me illustrate it this simple way. I know this sounds kind of silly, but just think with me for a minute. 
God did not create, create Adam and Eve and then look down like a couple of days later and, and, and they're like holding their stomach. And like, what, what, what's wrong with you? And they said, we are starving. I, I guess that's what it is. I don't know. It's like some kind of pain. And God didn't say, oh, I never thought about food. That, you know, we need, we need to make some food. God is so all-knowing and all-powerful, we sometimes might take for granted something that we need to pause and appreciate. God knows everything we need. And when we look at creation, we are seeing God fulfilling every need. But for whatever reason, God wanted to bring out an emphasis in Genesis 2 to say, I want to show you how I created marriage to fulfill the need of loneliness. Genesis 1 is all about creation. Genesis 2 is not some second creation story. Genesis 2 is just more details. And most of Genesis 2 details pertains to the sixth day. And so Genesis 1 is about each day of creation. And Genesis 2 is where God says, oh, let me slow down and just give you a lot more details about day, day 6. And so that's what we have here. And I'd, I'd like for you to read with me. In Genesis, the second chapter, the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. Now, that was the first time that he said it wasn't good. You remember at the close of each day, he was saying, it is good, it is good. And as a matter of fact, at the end of day six, this is during day six, at the end of day six, see down there in your Bible, in the first chapter, verse 32, see there, he actually says, uh, I'm sorry, at the end of 31, he says, it was very good. And, and, and he says, indeed, it was very good. So in other words, he went from during the day in day six saying, this isn't good, to the end of the day saying, oh, now indeed, it's very good now. Well, what happened? Well, when he first said it's not good, he says it's not good that man should be alone. And then immediately he gave the solution. I'll make him a help, helper comparable to him. Now, you remember, he also gave him a project. And the project was, I want you to name all the animals. And as he named all the animals, it became very clear to him that each of the animals have a helper suitable to them. They have a companion. But he noticed he did not find one that would be a companion for him. You see, a human is not just another animal. And so, so even though all the animals were there, there was not a helper suitable for him. And so now he recognizes something that is very, very important. And that is when it was just man on this earth, the human race was not complete. You know, when you think about a jigsaw puzzle, can you imagine trying to put a puzzle together with half the pieces missing? That's what was happening in the middle of the day when it was just Adam and God says, it's not good that man should be alone. Half of the human race is missing. And so when God decided then, now that Adam recognizes his loneliness, to make another human being, he didn't make one exactly like Adam. He made one that was corresponding to. He made one that was complementary to. 
In other words, if you brought just Eve into the picture, the human race wouldn't be complete. If you have just Adam, they wouldn't be complete. But you put the two together and you have Adam and Eve, man and woman. Now you have a completeness. The loneliness can now be resolved. And the solution is man and woman. Now with that in mind, if you look down at Genesis, the, 21, the second chapter, 21, 22, 23, going into 24, you'll notice that God made this other one by taking a rib from Adam's side. Now in the Hebrew, it is proper to translate that rib. I'm not saying it's a bad translation, but I'm just saying the other 30 plus times in the Old Testament that that word is translated, it is never again, other than in Genesis 2, translated real. Most of the other times, it's translated side. In other words, if, if your vision is that well, he just took out one little clean rib, no, he took out more than just one little clean rib. There's also some flesh involved in that. And the reason we know that is when he looked over after he wakes up. You ever woke up from surgery? I don't know exactly what it'd be to wake up from surgery when God was the surgeon. But, you know, you wake up from surgery and you're probably like, ooh, what, what, what just happened right there? And then God makes a presentation to him. And he brings Eve to him. And you remember what he says? He didn't just say, this is bone of my bone. He uses that description of side. He says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Why? Because she was taken from man. This companionship is beautiful. But the way in which man was created will help shape the role of husband and wife. Just like the way woman was created will shape the role of husband and wife. Maybe even next week we'll touch on this a little bit again, but since we're here in Genesis 2, I want you to see this. Here's one example in 1 Corinthians 11th chapter. The principle in 1 Corinthians 11th chapter is real plain. Some of the details is not so easy to understand. I want to dive right into verse 11 and 12, and I want you to think about in 1 Corinthians 11, I want you to think about in verse 11 and 12 how he's going back to creation when he says this. 1 Corinthians 11, 11, 12. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. Now, what are we saying? Just a moment ago, when we were in Genesis 2, and I tried to emphasize to you that the creation of woman made the human race a complete creation. Adam alone wasn't complete. Adam and Eve together is complete. Notice what he's saying there. He's saying, oh, you, you want to say just man alone can be independent of woman? No. Man alone can't be independent of woman. Women, you want to say, oh, I don't need a man. I don't need a man. No, you can't be complete alone without. And, and when we're thinking in the broad sense, now, can individuals? Yes. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul makes a strong argument for, for the beauty and the productivity and the meaning in life for those that are single. And he talks about that those that choose that, that that's the path in which they choose to live, that they can do great good in the kingdom. So, so we're not talking about each specific individual. We're talking about the human race can, can either say we are complete without the other. And this is how he drives it home in verse 12. For as woman 
came from man. See, that's talking about creation. That's talking about Eve. Even so, man also comes through woman. That's talking about every man that's here today. The only reason you're here today is because a woman gave birth to you. But all things are from God. God, why, why marriage? And one of the first reasons that he would give in the Bible is he would say, I wanted to address that topic of loneliness. And I wanted in the companionship to create one, not exactly like, but suitable for, I wanted to fulfill and complete the human race. A second thing is to be fruitful and multiply. God says a reason we should get married is as a human race to be fruitful and multiply. Look at Genesis 1 and 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. So see, when by the time we're reading now in Genesis 1, this is, this is like toward the end of day six. When you go into Genesis 2, he backs up in time and says, let's talk about before woman was made. So in other words, if you wanted to put this in chronological order, when it says here that he blessed them in 28, you'd have to take this down to the second chapter. And you know, down there where God brings to Adam Eve and presents her and, and Adam says, I'm, I'm going to call her a woman. She's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Somewhere after that is when you would read this. Look in 28. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so we see a hierarchy there of authority that, that the humans have dominion over all of the other living creation on this earth. But we also see the idea that God wants the human race to grow. When things are alive, they are growing. When things are dead, there's not growth. He looks at Adam and Eve and sees a living beginning of the human race. He says, I want you to grow. Now, when we think about offspring, where does God want children to be born? This may sound really simple, but it's... Very, very important. It's profound. Where does God want children to be born? You see, the first thing God did was create a man and a woman. And then he created them married or either there was a quick marriage ceremony there. But we see immediately they were husband and wife. And so he says to this husband and wife, which by the way, at the end of Genesis 2 there, you know, 25 is kind of seems odd that they were naked and not ashamed. You say, why is that verse thrown in there? Well, it's because neither one of them had sinned. The husband was righteous in his relationship with God, so there was no shame. The wife was righteous in her relationship with God, so there's no shame. And so here we see if, if, if man and woman would live on this earth the way God wants it to be, Here's the way it would be. You're going to have a husband that's committed to God and you're going to have a wife that's committed to God and they are also going to commit to each other in marriage. So there's two levels of commitment that are overlapped, simultaneously being lived out. 
The husband and wife are committed to God. The husband and wife are committed to each other. And then God would say, that is where I want children to be born. I want them to be born into layers of commitment. Now, I just want to show you this by application, not necessarily to introduce a new side topic. Turn quickly to Romans, the first chapter. In Romans, the first chapter, I want you to notice Paul is going to bring out several aspects of wrong that make up the sin of homosexuality. And so we're just going to jump in the middle or toward the end of his discussion. But I just want you to see one of the reasons why that he says it's wrong, because then it helps us understand or at least appreciate this beginning in the way God created marriage to be the place of reproduction. In Romans 1 and 26, he says, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. And, and vile means shameful. In other words, sin ought to always be shameful to us. I know our culture, you know, back, back since what the 80s and the 90s, you know, we, we say homosexuality has come out of the closet. It, it is being readily accepted in our culture today, but we as Christians need to always see it as a shame. Just like cohabitating. You know, a, a man and a woman decide not to marry. They decide to live together for a while. It is a shame. We, we must love the sinner, but we should never become accustomed to the sin so that we do not see its vileness, that we do not see its shame. Just like somebody that gossips. It ought to make you blush if somebody gossips. It's a shame. We should never let any sin become common to us. And so here he mentions homosexuality and, and its vileness. And, and then he says, for even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. The Greek word there for natural has to do with physical. And so he's saying, just look at two women and you will see that their bodies were not created physically for each other. Go back to creation. That, that, that ultimately is what Paul is saying. He says, God did not create for Adam. He didn't say, oh, you're alone. Remember, I gave you that exercise. You need to name the animals. You need someone. I tell you what, I'll make somebody just like you. Physically, that is not nature. And then notice the word when he says, uh, or that's not natural. And then notice when he says the word, it's against nature. The Greek word there is for growth. Just like when you walk out this time of year, probably almost every one of you already this time of year, you walked out and you've seen something budding or blooming or the grass turning greener. And maybe you've said something like this. You said, look at nature. What are you referring to? You're referring to growth. And so what he's saying is homosexuality won't produce growth. Do you realize the crime morally it would be against the human race if every person on earth today became a homosexual? We as a human race would be in a tailspin and only a few decades away from extinction. That, if you want to talk about nature, that is how deadly homosexuality is to the human race. If everybody participated in it, there would be no human race. There'd be no more children. There'd be no more grandchildren, and etc. Third, I'd like for you to see that 
probability is that the probability rises that we can raise godly children. I know we're out of time. Bad. Let's pick up that next week right there. This morning, you see the foundation of this month's lessons. Hopefully it's the foundation of every lesson that's ever preached from this pulpit. It's the idea that God has shaped our lives. We can look out to the world and say, hey, what, what, is a, what does a father or mother look like in, in the Mount Juliet community? Listen, it doesn't matter what it looks like in the Mount Juliet community. What does husband and wife look like here in Middle Tennessee? It doesn't matter what it looks like in Middle Tennessee. What does God say that we ought to look like as family? And what if we truly submit ourselves fully to God in this? And that's our goal. Why does God give us this direction? Because he loves us. Because he loves the human race. And because he loves our children that are even yet unborn. That's why he gives all of this directive. Can we help you this morning become a child of God? If you've never been adopted into God's family, you know that he really wants to adopt you. He loves you more than you love yourself. He loves you more than anybody has loved you. He loves you. And he truly, truly wants to spend a relationship now with you and an eternity with you. Are you willing to come through Christ this morning to him being immersed into Christ for the remission of your sins? Maybe things have separated you from God. Don't let it stay that way. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter even who we've become. God will forgive us. If we will repent and turn back to Him, God will create us anew. Let's be a part of His family. And when we do that, He'll help us be a blessing to our family. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.